This week, as we read through the account of the kings of Israel and Judah, there are, and by reading them in harmony, that is, Kings and Chronicles together, we get a little fuller picture of these men who uh, ruled. Just the way the author uh, puts the books together, you know, they run in cycles. It'll say so-and-so was king for so long, and then so-and-so became king, and, and they kind of leapfrog each other. They'll give you the reign of the king of Israel in the north, and then they'll They'll pick up the king of the south where his reign overlaps and then they'll carry him forward and then they'll go back and pick up the king from the north and carry him forward. And so they leapfrog through their various reigns and sometimes uh, their names are the same and then it really gets interesting. You have to pay close attention to which king you're actually talking about. But uh, perhaps to make it just a little bit easier, you can remember this simple fact. There were no good kings in the north. So any king you're reading about that does evil you can be pretty much assured he was a northern king, and there weren't very many good kings in the south. And even the ones that were good had their problems. And I want to look at one of those um, problem-ridden kings with you this morning here in Second Chronicles 24. This is the, uh, the, the king Joash. He was the boy king. You'll remember that his grandmother, Athaliah, uh, murdered all of his siblings, and he alone was spared as a baby. He was smuggled away and uh, kept in hiding until he was about seven years old. And then he was brought forward by the, the priest Jehoiada into the temple and proclaimed king. Now, we read all this, yes? Shake your head to let me know that you're... Okay, good. Somebody's affirming me. So he was brought into the temple. He was proclaimed king at age seven, and Jehoiada was his mentor. And over in uh, Second Kings, you don't have to go there, but it's just an interesting statement. His name there is called Jehoash, uh, Joash, same man. It says, Joash did right on the side of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. He was a king who did right only as long as it was somebody watching. Somebody there to help him along. He had righteousness, but his righteousness was external, not internal. So as long as his mentor walked by his side, he did what was right in the, in the sight of the Lord. But as soon as his mentor died, and that's the account here in Second Chronicles, we find out what was really on the inside. And beloved, I've chosen this passage just to read this morning because that is such a danger for us. It is so dangerous to substitute external righteousness for inward righteousness. Inward righteousness comes only by the Spirit of God operating within. External righteousness can be put on by many people in many ways. So as we read this together, let the Spirit of God search our hearts to find out whether we're really what we're like on the inside, not just the outside. Second Chronicles 24, beginning here in verse 15. Now, when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. 
Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. And the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and he said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him. And at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of God. And Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Now it came about at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. And when they had departed from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and murdered him on his own bed. So he died and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. This is the boy king who started out so well, so well. Yet it was all external. It was all a sham. His righteousness was just a veneer. His true heart was that of a murderer, an idolater, a blasphemer, and he suffered the shameful death of being assassinated and not even residing in the tomb of the kings when he died. A life that started so well and ended so poorly. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, this, uh, this account is instructive to us. It's instructive to us as parents in the raising of our own children. Our Father, that we would not, that we would not be satisfied with mere conformity to a set of rules and standards. We would not be we would not be satisfied with a mere external show of righteousness. Meanwhile, the heart being so very far from you. Our Father, this is instructive in terms of our own discipleship of those who have expressed faith in Christ. Lord God, that the, the heart of the matter is the issue of the heart. And what the mouth says is not so important as to what the life really is all about. This is instructive for self-examination, Lord. What are we like, our Father, when no one's watching? When we are in the secret place, when the counselors and, and um, advisors that you bring into our lives, when they're not there, what are we like? Our Father, this passage is instructive because it reveals the, the deepness of the human heart and its susceptibility to treachery and, and unbelief. So, Father, as we meditate on it this morning and, and as we uh, come before you and worship this morning, Lord, we ask your Spirit to search our hearts. 
Lord, that we would not be going through just a ritual here together. Somehow uh, relying on externals, yet at the same time our heart is so far from you. Lord God, may you cleanse us. May you reveal the secret sin within. And may you grant us the grace to forsake it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 16, please. John 16. This past week, I've been making a couple of trips to the chiropractor. My back has been uh, been bothering me. And uh, they did a full spinal x-ray and pointed out a few places where uh, perhaps my youthful indiscretions when I was indestructible, have now come home to roost. And uh, so, anyway, they're working on that, I suppose. You know, I was telling Dennis here just a while ago, I, uh, I would rather remember what it was like to play sports these days and to actually get out there and participate. You know, I was a better athlete in my memory anyway than uh, I ever was in real life. In fact, the further I get away from it, the better I was. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't play professional sports, you know. But anyway, but, you know, I was I was just thinking about um, the chiropractor and how it relates to the gospel. So you probably want to see me bridge that one, don't you? Well, they they tell you that there's um, progress through pain. So what they tell you, it's going to hurt for a while until things get shaped back up, and then it's going to feel good. So there's sort of a progress through pain. And I was thinking about the gospel, and that's kind of true there too. There is a progress through pain. There is a, you know, a sorrow to joy. There is no crown before a cross. That's the way God has put it together. And this morning... In the verses that we're going to look at, that's very much the theme of, of these verses. We're going to be looking at uh, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And uh, that's a long slug of verses. And I, you know, but it's okay because there's really a lot of repetition in these verses. This, uh, we're coming to the end of the what's traditionally called the upper room discourse. These are the final hours that Jesus is, is going to spend with his disciples here on earth. He's going to the cross very soon now. Depending how you, you, know, you interpret some earlier statements, uh, they may still be in the upper room or they may very well be on, uh, on their journey to Gethsemane. In either case, that doesn't matter that much. But Jesus has brought up a lot of information. He's crammed together a lot of, of uh, stuff they need to know in these final hours. And, and so here as he kind of wraps it up, he's going to review a number of those themes. Because at the end of chapter 16, he's done talking to them. Chapter 17 is his high priestly prayer, which is addressed to the Father and deals with really uh, the Father's relationship to the church. And we'll deal with that when we get there, but... But essentially, Jesus is done talking to them when we get to the end of chapter 16. 
There'll be very little that he'll say from this point forward. It's going to be on his way quickly to the cross. And so here he's, he's, he's going to pull together a number of the themes, the threads that he had previously introduced over the evening together, and he's going to kind of touch on them. So I think we can go through quite a number of verses together, uh, and we can do it in one session together because I looked back in my notes, uh, my records, to see when did we begin together the Upper Room Discourse, you know, at John 13.1. And that was on August 22nd, 2004. So we've been almost a year in the Upper Room. So you don't mind if we leave quickly uh, this morning, do you? I didn't think you would, so... Well, that's my plan, is we're going to do that. So I'm, I'm not going to give you a detailed, you know, um, verse by verse, clause by clause explanation of these verses. What I want to do is I want to lift out some themes and, and remind you quickly of these themes. We've dealt with all of this before in somewhat excruciating detail together. Okay? Jesus is imminently leaving. And so he's just got a few things left to say, and he's going to draw it together. Now, again, the overriding theme is probably one of confusion still. They, they, uh, they've been listening to him all night long. Well, they've been listening to him for three and a half years, and they've been listening to him all night long, and they still don't really get it. And that will become apparent even here in the text. Confusion um, prevails among them. Even, when they, even at the end here, when they say they do get it, Jesus questions them. He said, really? You really get it now? No, you don't, because uh, they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You're going to abandon me here just momentarily. So they're very much confused. They really don't get it. But Jesus is going to hammer away just one more time with them. He's going to leave them with these words kind of ringing in their ears. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will behold... Uh, you will no longer behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow. Because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And no one takes your joy away from you. In that day, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask. And you will receive that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. 
I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The key, I think, for interpreting this final section of John's Gospel is really here in verses 20 and 21. So I want to just begin and look at that and set that up as an interpretive key to kind of unlock the message of the passage here. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus is talking first about the the deep emotional uh, pain and sorrow that his death is going to bring. I mean, look again at the verse. It says, truly, truly, pay attention. I mean, I mean, this is important. I say to you, you will weep and lament. Those are funeral terms. Those are the, those are the terms. In fact, they're used over in Luke 7.32 together in that context of a funeral. Weeping and lamenting. Wailing. They are going to be undone emotionally in a matter of a few hours. All their hopes All their dreams, all that they expected to occur is going to be shattered in front of them. As the sun breaks and kind of rises up onto the city of Jerusalem, there will be Christ stretched out between two convicts on a Roman cross. All that they had hoped for shattered in a public spectacle of crucifixion. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. You will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. Do you see that? That which will cause the greatest tragedy to them is that which will cause rejoicing in the world. His enemies will will be rubbing their hands together in glee and saying, finally, we got rid of that pesky Galilean carpenter. That one who has the audacity to walk right into the temple and to challenge us in the very base of operations, overturning the tables of the money changers, right? Driving out those selling sacrifices. Not permitting anyone to move through the temple for a period of two days. That one who bested the brightest and the greatest theological minds of Israel in open public dispute and debate. To the point where they no longer were were willing to ask him a question. Because every time they set a trap for him, he sprung it on him. And they walked away with the claws, you know, closed around their own leg. They hated him. They absolutely hated him. They decided they were going to kill him a long time ago. After Lazarus' resurrection. They waited only the time. And Judas was going to deliver that to them. So when they see him hanging there, that, that moment, that spectacle of the cross, for, for one is a time of, of weeping and lamenting, and for another it's a time of hallelujah. We got rid of him. 
verse 20 again, but you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. It's not going to be sorrow forever. It's going to be transformed. What do you mean, Jesus? He tells him a, a simple parable, verse 21. As I say, this is the key, I think, to unlocking this whole section together. And what he says is that when a woman is in, in labor, there is tremendous agony involved. There is tremendous travail. There is, there is a sense in which her world is coming undone. But when the baby's born, it all becomes worth it. It's not that the, when the baby's born that the pain goes away, right, ladies? It's not even that you forget the pain. It's that the pain becomes worth it. It is transformed. The sorrow becomes joy, he says. And that's indeed what is going to happen for them. The sorrow of the cross will not go away. It's not like they will forget what happened that day. But the joy coming out on the other end will be of such magnitude that the sorrow will be all worth it. That's the key. That's the key to pulling this thing apart, I think. So as we do that this morning... As we look at these verses together, with that key as a pre-understanding, what I want to see together with you is five benefits. Five benefits that come to us because of Jesus' triumph over the grave. So that we will glorify Him for all that He has done. Five. You ready? We're going to go through them relatively quickly here. The first benefit is the certainty of bodily resurrection. The certainty of bodily resurrection. It's, it's here in verses 16 through 19, and then I'm going to scoop up verse 33 at the end and kind of pull it together that way for you. Okay? It's the certainty of the bodily resurrection. Beginning there, back in verse 16, Jesus said, A little while, you know, a few hours here, you will no longer behold me again a little while, and you will see me. What is he talking about? He's saying very simply that in a little while, I'm going to be gone, right? I'm going to die and be put in the ground. But in a little while more, I will do what? I will rise from the dead and you will see me. Okay? In a short time, I'm gone. I'll be gone a while. Then you'll see me again. Now, he's clearly, I think, speaking here about the physical side of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They did see him over a period of 40 days in a number of different places. And it was not an illusion, right? Because he gave them ample evidence, right? Stick forth your hand, stick it in the hole in my hand, stick your, you know, the hole in my side. You got any broiled fish, by the way? Not because I'm hungry. But there was plenty of evidence to let them know that this is indeed was the bodily Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. So it's a physical sight going on here, but I think it's more too. I think there's spiritual sight going on here. When he was crucified, their, their spiritual sight was, was blurred. 
Their world was coming undone. And, and even when he was resurrected, it, it took a while for the spiritual sight to catch up to the physical sight. I think the words of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were probably a very common thought among his disciples. You know, they, they said, Luke 24, 21, don't turn, they were just listening. It says, you know, they were speaking with Jesus, right? Walking along and they've been prevented from knowing who he is. And it's kind of interesting what they say, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was the one. Later, even when they heard firsthand accounts, they refused to believe. Mark 16, 11 to 13 says, When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. That's the same too. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. So it took a while for the spiritual sight to catch up to the physical sight. But they became certain of a bodily resurrection. They became so certain of that bodily resurrection that, you know, that couldn't be dislodged. They all went to their death. Most of them cruelly proclaiming that he is alive from the dead. Now, the confusion here, I don't go over it again. It was pretty plain, I think, in verses 17 to 19. You know, he said, a little while, you're not going to see me. A little while, you will see me. They're saying, what in the world is he talking about? You know, they're kind of muttering to each other here. They just can't get it. I mean, the idea of a Messiah that dies is so foreign to them, they can't process it. They just can't process it. And he's been telling them, by the way, you know, for at least the last six months, on a regular basis, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified at the hands of the Gentiles, and in three days I will rise again. Now, to us, that sounds so plain, doesn't it? That's because we're sitting on the other side of the cross looking backwards and it all makes great sense. But for them, looking forward, they just can't get it. They cannot make sense out of it. And so they they're continue in their state of being baffled by Jesus and what he's talking about. But that doesn't stop Christ from just continuing to hammer away at the same theme. I will rise from the dead. There is a certainty to my bodily resurrection. In fact, you go to uh, verse 33. I said, we'll scoop it up here. Let me say, these things I have spoken to you. And I I think he's referring back to to what he said that night. That in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Greek perfect tense verb. Past action with continuing consequences. That's a pretty bold statement to make. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And he's saying, listen, I have overcome the world. The death for him was just just another part of the plan of God that will eventuate in his own resurrection and the formation of the church and the eternal plan of God. So you will have tribulation. There will be persecution. There will be the hard circumstances of life, the pressure that will come to you. But take courage in it all. I have overcome the world. I have overcome. You know, early in the same evening, uh, back in uh, chapter 14, verse 19, 
As I say, all of this is just picking up themes that have been going through this whole discourse. The end of verse 19, he says, uh, I'll just pick it up 19. He says, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. Okay, I have overcome the world. Am I going to die? Yeah, you bet. But death is not the end. I will be bodily resurrected. Bodily resurrected. And beloved, that is the first benefit that comes to us. It is the certainty of the bodily resurrection. Do you know, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that demonstrates once and for all time that his sacrifice was accepted. That his atonement was full and complete. The fact that he remains not in the grave is the evidence that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. I mean, that makes up the core of the very first sermon that Peter preaches after on the day of Pentecost. He says, David, he's still in the grave. But David, in his prophecy about you will not abandon my soul to Hades, right? My flesh will not undergo decay. He's talking about another one. He's talking about the Christ. We know Jesus atoned for our sin because he was bodily resurrected. And beyond that, we know that we will be resurrected too. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection. The certainty of our resurrection hinges upon the reality of his. As he was raised bodily, we will be raised too. In fact, over in 1 Thess chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, the Apostle Paul says there, comfort one another with these words. How do you comfort someone who has lost a loved one? What comfort do you bring? What is the basis under which we can say to someone, minister to someone in the midst of the pain of a loss of a, of a loved one? What is the hope for a spouse who's losing a partner to some dreaded disease? For those who know Christ, it is a certainty of the bodily resurrection. It is the reality that their sin has been atoned for. It is the reality that they too will rise again. It is the reality that there will be a reunion again someday. That when you put the box in the ground and you throw the dirt over it, that's not all there is. Well, but if it wasn't for this, we might as well eat, drink. Tomorrow we die. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to follow Christ if there's no resurrection. The grave ends it all. And praise God it doesn't. The first benefit that comes to us is the certainty of the bodily resurrection. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And you will overcome it too. Through him. That leads us to our second benefit. Down in verse 22. And that's an indestructible joy. Look at verse 22. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. 
The joy that will come to them is not just the joy of a reunion. It's not like he's gone away on a journey and, you know, when he comes home, everybody hugs and kisses and says, Boy, did I really miss you. That's not the kind of joy he's talking about here. Look again at that verse. No one takes your joy away from you. People will try. Circumstances will attempt to take your joy away, but it cannot be taken. It is an indestructible joy. It is not merely just that the sorrow gives way to joy. It's that the sorrow is transformed into joy, and thus it cannot be removed. Joy is what will characterize your life, he says. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's writing from a prison in Rome. Not known for for its good care of its prisoners. He's writing from prison there. In Philippians 2, verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, that's just a biblical way of saying, even if I'm dying here, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I have joy in prison. In the midst of the circumstances of life... Paul says, I rejoice. Galatians 5.22, he says, joy is a fruit of the Spirit of God, right? 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about, he's talking about the resurrection in verses 3 through 6. And, and he talks about what my Greek professor used to call Toyota joy. I love that analogy. It's that old Toyota commercial where, you know, my back would kill me if I tried that. They jump up and click their heels together, right? That's Toyota joy. I mean, it's just, it's big. Peter says the resurrection that gives us that kind of joy. First John, Apostle John, many years later, reflecting back on this. He says, make my joy complete by joining with us. In what? In the resurrection life. The resurrection life. It is, it is our fellowship together in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us joy. Fill it up for me. Make it complete. Join me. Join me in what I have. It's a life of joy. No one takes it away, he says. Nobody. Not health or lack thereof. Not wealth or lack thereof. Not family or lack thereof. The world doesn't give it and the world can't take it away. It is an indestructible joy. That leads us to our third benefit. Our third benefit is the guarantee of answered prayer. The guarantee that God will answer our prayer. Yes, sir, folks, I guarantee you God will answer your prayer. Sounds like some crazy TV guy, doesn't it? Right? That's what Jesus says, verses 23 and 24. 
In that day, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, He will give it to you in my name. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. That is not a qualified statement. It's not saying ask and maybe yes, maybe no. Ask and you will receive. That is a guarantee from the living God, that your prayers will be answered. That's a benefit, isn't it? What is the basis for the answer? The basis of the answer is in the merit of Christ, in my name, he says. He will give it to you in my name, verse 23. Ask in my name. What favorably disposes God towards us? Why does God incline himself towards you? Why would he bother to answer your prayer? Why does he care about you? What is it about you that is attractive to God? It is your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the fact that by faith you are in Christ, as the Apostle Paul will develop it, and which all the blessings and riches of the Godhead are poured forth on you. It is not on your merit. It is not because you're a nice person, and many of you are. Maybe I should say all of you are. Right? All but one or two, anyway. I'll leave you to figure out who it is. It's because what Christ has done. God loves the Son. And He loves you in the Son. Ask Him my name. I will grant it. He will grant it to you. What does it mean to answer the name, ask in the name of Jesus Christ? And we spent some time talking about that in detail some months ago. So again, we're not going to go over it all again. But, but what it means is, uh, in short form, is that you, a- you ask on the basis of the work and character and mission of Jesus Christ. You voice the kind of prayer that Christ would voice were you to stand in your stead. You ask on the basis of His merit, not yours. And you ask on the, for his purpose, not yours, that his name would be glorified. What would Jesus want in this situation? You want your prayer to be answered? All you have to do is pray what Jesus would pray. God always answers Jesus' prayers. Just pray like Christ and Guarantee, it'll be answered. Right? It's a praying and a humble submission. It's a, it's a praying in the context here of yielding to the process of sorrow to joy, I think. Understanding it's a cross before a crown.
Alan Redpath, preacher of the last century, relatively well-known. He says, when God wants to use a man, he first takes him and crushes him. You want to be used of God? Got to crush you first, according to Redpath. He doesn't use people that are filled with themselves. He uses people that have been crushed so that all the good is then attributed to only Christ, right? How is your prayer life? Is God answering your prayers? When you go to prayer, do you have a confidence that God is hearing and will answer? Or are you just kind of winging stuff up there and hoping something sticks? I mean, these are amazing words, aren't they? These are the words of a guarantee. You know, if this is a legal contract, you know, this would be the kind of the fine print stuff. We guarantee. Except there's no escape clauses here. We're guaranteeing it. If you ask in Jesus' name, that leads us to our fourth benefit. Our fourth benefit is over in verse 25. Our fourth benefit here is what I'm calling New Testament revelation. Let me just read the verse and talk about that a minute. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, and hours coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Before the cross, Jesus is known for speaking in parables. Isn't that right? Dark sayings, mystifying words. He would get up to preach and then he would sit back down and people would be sitting there scratching their heads. And what did he just say? I mean, we know he comes from God because no man speaks the way this man speaks. Probably flunk every homiletics class in seminary, Dennis, right? Supposed to speak plainly. <laughs> he did anything but speak plainly. He constantly spoke in such a way that invited deeper contemplation. He didn't put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Right? But he says here that a time is coming when I will no more speak to you that way. I'll tell you plainly. Plainly of the Father. What is he talking about? He's talking about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. It takes only a very casual reading of, a comparative reading in the New Testament of the Gospels to the book of Acts and the Epistles to note that there is a real difference in the way things are done. Isn't that right? When you read through the Epistles, you read through the book of Acts, what you don't encounter is parables, dark sayings, enigmatic expressions, Right? You find much clearer didactic type of material. That's why uh, Western preachers love the epistles. They outline nicely. They conform to our Western logic better. The cookies are on the bottom shelf. You get to the Gospels and sometimes, you know, you read a passage and you sit down and you scratch your head and you say, now what in the world am I going to do with that? Was it just that Jesus was a poor communicator? 
I wouldn't go there. He intentionally spoke in such a way that invited deeper scrutiny among his followers and obscured the truth from those on the outside. Same message. But after Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, and that's what had been predicted earlier here in in John uh, chapter 16 and over in John 14, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, all of a sudden the lights go on, the understanding is there, the the, the text is plain, and and they just begin to proclaim a message that goes out all over the world. Even Gentiles who are not steeped in the Old Testament can get enough to get them going. Very plainly, he says, I will speak to you of the Father. Through the the Spirit whom I will send. Why is that a benefit to us? Well, it's a benefit to us because we have in our hands the plain speaking. We also have the Gospels too, don't we? We get both. We have the plain speaking, the message that had been clarified to them through the Spirit that they then took out into the world. Beloved, they recorded for you and for me in the pages of the New Testament. It's not hearsay. It's not, it's not telephone. It's not what somebody says that somebody said that somebody said that somebody said. They wrote it down. And God preserved it. So we have the clarity Available to us, and that's a benefit, isn't it? You want to know the mind of God? He's recorded it for you. You want to pray in Jesus' name? Get to know Jesus. And then you can pray in His name. Fifth benefit. Fifth benefit and final from this is calling it direct access to the Father. Direct access to the Father. Verse 26 says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. He says that After the resurrection, coming of the Spirit, you will go directly to God the Father. Jesus died on that cross. The veil of the temple did what? It was torn in two, wasn't it? Top to bottom. Access to God the Father was thrown wide open through Jesus the Son. Direct access. Now granted, it's based on the merit of Christ. But Jesus is saying here, and I think it's, I think it's worth camping on just for a minute, and, and that is that, the, that there is a, it's not just that you go through Christ to, to get to the Father. That's theologically true. It's not that Jesus is just the the mediator, as Hebrews would say. That's theologically true. But But what Jesus is trying to encourage them with here is that you have now direct access into the throne room of God the Father himself. 
Again, this side of the cross, you know, maybe you think, eh, well, whatever. Think about these disciples. Think about what's going on the very night in which this is being spoken. Access to the Father there comes through the blood of sheep, right? The brook that's running through the Kidron Valley is running red tonight with the bloods of the sacrifice. If there was anything true of the Old Testament, it was that access to the Father was not easy, not simple. It was very restricted, very prohibited, very scary. That all going to change. That's all going to change. I mean, you didn't bring your lamb in with you this morning, did you? Right? You waltz right in here. We just start praying to God the Father. Anytime, anyplace. Right? No more ritual. No more barriers. No more high priests. No more tradition. Access right to the throne room of the Creator. Father loves you, he says. He loves you because you love me. He loves you because you love me. Five benefits available to us because of the sorrow of Christ, right? His passion. All come down to the issue of do you love me? Are these benefits true of your life? Can you say that there is a certainty of bodily resurrection that you you have? You have that certainty. You know, if you were to go today, you know where you'd be. Beloved, death death is stalking every one of us. No man knows his time. God alone. If you were to go tonight, do you know where you would go? Are you sure? If you're not sure, then today is the day to make it sure. Today is the day to call out in faith like the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I understand enough to know that you died on that cross in my place. I believe that your death paid for my sin. I believe that you rose again on the third day. And I believe that you did it for me. By grace, we are saved through faith. Apostle Paul says, Have you exercised faith in Christ? And for those of us who have, 
Are we living in light of the benefits that are available to us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your passion is the greatest event of the universe. The greatest display of the wrath of God and the love of God juxtaposed one with another. The greatest display of your holiness, mercy. The greatest display of your love. The greatest display of your power. We pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are here this morning who have yet to experience that resurrection power. Whose lives are still lived in the here and the now and have no hope of tomorrow. Lord, may you soften their hearts even now. Grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. And Lord God, for your people who have their own sorrows, their own trials, their own tribulations, and perhaps have been overwhelmed in the world and have forgotten just what benefits are theirs through Christ. May you remind them again fresh this morning. Give them resurrection hope that we might all glorify the Lord Jesus Christ who makes this all a reality. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together here in just a moment. I do want to say that when we finish, we have a final hymn. And if there are questions in your mind, perhaps spiritual discussion that you want to have, maybe something that you've been thinking about this week or perhaps even just this morning. We have people who want to talk to you, the people who are trained to talk to you, give you some spiritual counsel, open a Bible with you and show you what the Word of God says. They'll be waiting for you over by that lighted cross. You come there after service. They'll talk with you. We will point you to the Savior.